Two sons, two brothers. One was called Adam, the older in the family, a hard worker, but that was to be expected. As the older brother, he would be inheriting all this land from his father. His father owned all the land in the village. He was wealthy, respected, the employer of the majority of the people in the village. He had another son, the younger son. We'll call him Obed. Young, work shy. Definitely not on speaking terms with his brother. He who is a day older is a year wiser, the old proverb says. The second person in authority over you is not your mother in this culture, but your brother. And boy, did Adam let Obed know it. Morning, brother, Adam said first thing at the breakfast table. Big day plan, do we, bro? How about a bit of uh, wandering in the fields, followed by an afternoon nap on the hay bales? How's the repair work coming on on that drywall down by the uh, crossroads? Uh, Oh, you didn't find any workmen to hire? Of course you didn't. Shut up, will you? Obed cried. Just shut up. That's no way to speak to your older brother now, is it, you little... Shut up, Obed said. Their father walked in. Silence. Morning, my dear sons. What a wonderful sunrise this morning. What, what, What were you talking about? The father asked as the boys sat awkwardly at opposite ends of the table. Nothing, Adam the elder said. Just think about all the extra work I'm going to have to do here today. The father listened quietly as his boys bickered, tension sitting thickly in the air around the breakfast table. Obed said, I can't do it anymore, father. What do you mean, son? I want my share. What do you mean, son? I want my share of the family's wealth. I know the law. I have a right to a third of a family's wealth. You want your what? Adam yelled. I want my share. I want out of this village. I want out of this house. I want out of this family. I'm done. His father listened and slowly and calmly responded, you will get your share, son. But in due time, it is our custom. I want it now. I don't care about our custom. Obed said. Adam, the older brother, flew into a range. Now you say now? Why don't you just say what you mean, little brother? You can't wait for your father to die. I just want my share, Obed screamed. I want out of this village. I want out of this life. I want to do what I want. We'd be the laughingstock of a country, Adam said. Imagine the shame you'd be bringing on your father. The whole village, the whole world would know that a son in this family is desperate for his father to die. His father stopped the argument. He raised his hand in the air, tears welling in his eyes. Obed, you may have what you wish. As Adam stormed out, his father muttered to himself, how long, how long must I suffer until I have a son? That's the first scene in our story. This is one of the most powerful, beautiful stories in the world. And it's not just a story. As we read God's word today, hear that this is a story laced with meaning. It's a story full of power and most importantly, full of truth. This story tells us great things about who God is. Great things about how he responds to us here on earth, about what he's done for us and about what life can look like with him. 
what this story, alongside the two we looked at last week, they're the same parables, they build on each other. What they fundamentally do is help us see the difference between religion and Christianity. And maybe you're sitting here and you're saying there is no difference. Christianity is just another religion. Well, this story and the whole Bible tells us now what Jesus taught is fundamentally different to anything else. A quick recap, bit of audience interaction. Um, as we said last week, the stories of the sheep and the coin and the sons, they're all classed as one. Verse one, Jesus is with the tax collectors and the sinners, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable, one parable, three of them he builds on them. Um, can anyone tell me what are the similarities in this story to the other two stories? What are the similarities? Something's lost. Good, Jake. Anything else? Any other similarities we see? Anything more, Jake? Any more profoundity? The lost thing gets found, good. And what happens after the lost thing is found? Rejoicing. There's a party, rejoicing, celebration, great. Differences. Two stories last week, both had those same things. Something lost, something found in a party. Any differences we notice through the parable of the lost sons? There are relationships in this one. Coins and sheep. Pretty inanimate, well, sheep less so, but less of a relationship. There's a real relationship here, yeah. Anything else? Son chose <coughs> Correct. The son chose a, a coin, just fell. The sheep was probably a little bit stupid and wandered off. The younger son chooses to go. We're going to see later, there's no older coin or older sheep. We're going to look at that next week. Why did Jesus tell these stories? Anyone remember that from last week? What's the, what's the context? What's the verse? Great. To indicate what God is like. He's speaking to the muttering Pharisees. That's the context. Verse 1 and verse 2, he's speaking to the teachers and religious leaders who are saying, who is this man who welcomes sinners and eats with them? They were complaining. And Jesus tells these stories, these three stories, to cut them off at the knees. He's saying to them, your understanding of God, of who God is, and who you are, is entirely wrong. And he does it by story. So my prayer is that this story helps us see the real world with more clarity than, it did, than we did before. So as I said, today we're going to focus on the first half of the story, the youngest son, and then next week we're going to look into the often forgotten older son. And today we've got three scenes, rebellion, repentance, and restoration. Firstly, rebellion. We saw this in our introduction, didn't we? The story of Obed and Adam. When the youngest son in verse 12, and do please keep your Bibles open, don't trust what I'm saying, look at the Bible. Uh, when the younger son says in verse 12, Father, give me my share of the estate, he was making the most outrageous, insulting request possible. It was literally as if he was saying, Father, I want you dead. And Jesus is saying, why is he telling the story? He's saying it. He's trying to go, surely no one could be worse than this guy. Nobody could be worse than him. 
because this son is basically saying, can you just die, Dad? Because you're minted, I want it, and I can't wait. I want to get out of town and have a real life. He's a pretty wretched bloke, this guy. We then see the younger son leave the land. Uh, practical reasons, he'd have to leave, really. The hatred the village would have for him would have been so great. The shame he brought on the villagers. So he leaves the land, and then he squanders his wealth in what we're told is wild living. Um, we're a bright group here, so I don't think I really need to unpack what that means. Wild living. Waste his money. Now, at this point, we can sense just how broken the relationship with his brother and his father and the village must be. Because why doesn't he just go home? He's lost all his money. Why doesn't he just go home? Well, he'd have to endure his brother's scorn, the shame he's brought on his brother, anger they would have with each other, and he'd have to face his village. Anyone who squanders their inheritance amongst foreigners in this culture would be due a ceremony if they ever returned. A ceremony when they break a pot in front of the village and shout, shame, 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 and basically told them to get lost. You couldn't come back. The shame on the village. He'd be literally cut off by his people. So at this point, the younger son makes every effort to not go back to his village. We see that, don't we? Look down with me as we see this here. Severe famine, verse 14 hits. And the desperate prodigal, he hires himself out to a citizen of the country he was in. And the citizen gives the younger son a job he was pretty confident a good Jewish boy would refuse. He assigns the son to feed and clean the pigs. It's not a great job for a Jewish boy from a rich background. Famine continues, no food, minimal shelter. And we're meant to see it's an utter disaster. So at this stage, the son's shame he would have had at returning to his village to his brother and to his father is overcome. He gets to the lowest of the low, the bottom of the bottom, and he goes, Phew. It's interesting. He didn't seriously consider coming home until every other alternative was looked at. But let's stick ourselves into this story. Let's think, why is Jesus telling this? What does it mean? Why is he telling this to us here today? Well, the father, as we've probably guessed, represents God. And as we've seen, this son rejects him, despises him, leaves him. He's separated from the Father. He's separated from God. And us and all the listeners of this parable are probably meant to go, that makes sense. This boy is an utter waster. That makes utter sense that he's gone. It's a pretty universal story, isn't it? But what has this got to do with me? We don't have to be as screwed up as this boy to understand that we all face a dilemma. That if there is a God, and if so much has been given to us by him, and if we make a decision that the far country is where we want to be, and that he can give me my life and my friends, but you know what, I'll run my own party and find my own joy, then the universal question comes, how do I find joy? That's all this younger son is doing. He's trying to find joy. He's trying to find his happiness. And the question today in Bista, does faith in Christ have anything to do with joy? Or is it something to do with duty? with what I ought to do? Is there any link here to a heart filled with joy? This parable, we've got two sons, as I said, and it tells us two basic ways we all try and find joy. Two basic ways we all try and find life. Either by doing what is right, or by doing what I want. The elder brother, we're going to look at him in depth next week, he represents the doing what is right way. The Pharisees, 
That's who he's speaking to, of Jesus' day, believed that, that they could maintain their place in God's blessing by strict obedience to the Bible. The younger brother represents the do-what-I-want way. This says that we must be free to do what we want, regardless of tradition or custom. Personal freedom is what matters. We hear that echo today in society so often, don't we? What I want to do is the most important thing. I decide what right and wrong is, and I'm going to live as I want to live and find my true worth and happiness that way. And our world is split so tightly down these lines that it's, we don't even see them. Of course, not everyone falls neatly into one box or the other all the time. You can look at yourself and a large number of people are naturally inclined one way or the other. I know I am. And the message of this parable is that both approaches are wrong. Jesus is blunt. He's direct. His parable tells us about a radical alternative. So we have this younger son in the pigsty. And it's worth saying at this point, when we break out of our attachment with the Father, when we break away from the Father with God, we'll always end up attached to something else. And with that attachment, that thing we now live for, where we're seeking our joy, we'll see it later. It's always slavery. This guy was slaving away in a pigsty. It's always slavery. It's not sonship. Where we find our joy could be in multiple different places. It could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be sex, as we're meant to think with wild living. It could be us attaching our worth or our value to a hobby or a sport or even our family, a vision of a future we want to have. And we need to hear the warning. If we break loose from the Father, if we break loose from God, we will be attached to something else. And in the end, we'll always end up in the pigsty. The relationship with the Father is what is broken here. The younger son has rebelled against his father, and unlike the sheep, as Chris said earlier, unlike the sheep who have absent-mindedly wandered off, or the coin which just fell, the son is left by his own volition. Rebellion. Secondly, then, repentance. Look down at me, verse 17. He's at the lowest of the low. Then when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'll set out... Go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Finally, we say, here he is, and he's going to return to his father. Praise God. This is a great picture of repentance, isn't it? Of turning back to God. Wrong. (laughs) This is not repentance in verse 17. This is not turning back to God and restoring that relationship. There's no mention here, really, of his angst against the father. He's basically going, I'm hungry, I need food, and even my father's hired servants have more food than I do. It's a face-saving plan. It's a business deal. His problem was with the village. He knew he'd lost all the money. He knew he'd brought real shame to them, and he thought he'd have to repay that money back in order to be restored to the family and to the community. He had no skills, though. He's a waster, probably. He's a young son who would have been under his father. He probably didn't have any skills, and he'd squandered his money, so his plan was basically to skill up and pay back the money. Notice when it says that in verse 17. Or verse 18. Make me like one of your hired servants. Make me one of your hired servants. Make me a craftsman, Father, so I can earn my own way back, so I can become part of the community again. And so often, 
when someone is drawn back to God, it's instinctive to say, I know I'm not right with God. Tell me what to do. I've tried another way and it hasn't brought me the life I yearn for. I'll cut a deal. He's willing to work his way back in. He's willing to cut a deal. He still thinks it's an issue of money for his father. It's an issue of status. It's a broken deal, not a broken relationship. So in verse 20, as he gets up and he goes to his father, as he approaches the village, the younger son is still lost. As he walks up the hill rehearsing his speech, he's still lost. He still doesn't understand or know his father. And then the most magnificent thing happens. Restoration. Let's dive back into the story. The father had spent every day out in the fields near the entrance to the village. Some days he was on the second floor of the house, looking out the window to see if his son would ever return. His child was missing. His child had run away. He was in anguish and pain. Yes, he'd given his son the freedom to leave, but his pain was still deep. Every shape moving on the horizon had his heart skip a beat with excitement. Was that him? Oh, just another camel. The father knew what would happen, though, if his son ever cho chose to return. He knew the anger of the villagers. He knew the most likely outcome was a severe beating, spitting, kicking. His son may not even make it home alive. And the father knew his other son wouldn't help, his, the older brother. That relationship between the two brothers seemed impossibly broken. And then, years after the younger son first left, the father was looking out in the fields <coughs> and he saw something. He recognised the shape, he recognised the walk, he presumed he must be seeing something he'd been looking out for so long. Or he presumed it would just turn out to be one of his craftsmen returning from a trip. But no, as he got closer he could see it was his son. And so he did the unthinkable. He ran. Now, a Middle Eastern patriarch does not run. The father had not run in years. It's not dignified. It's not what is done. It also had the unintended consequence of meaning you need to hike up your long robe, exposing your feet, a really shameful thing in the Middle East. But he runs. The father knows the humiliation and the suffering his son will face as soon as he crosses the threshold of the village. And so he takes that suffering on himself. The father takes the shame and the humiliation due to his son. Let's stop and ponder. This is a story that tells us what God is like. Let's not lose that. Let's let some of these details as we continue to look at it hit us. The love, the compassion, the searching, the suffering of the father. When the father takes on the utterly humiliating pose of the running man on the road, he becomes a symbol of God as he came to earth. We celebrate that at Christmas, don't we? God comes to earth, the incarnation at great cost. He came down to find and find us and resurrect and restore us, the one that was lost and dead. Let's put ourselves in the prodigal shoes now. As he cussed the hill, to the village, his heart was beating fast. What would happen? Would he make it through alive? He was tired, immensely hungry and desperate. I've sinned against you. Make me a hired servant, he rehearsed. I've sinned against you. Make me a side. He, he changed the intonation, trying to work out how he was going to say this to his father. 
He could hear the taunts. He could feel the shame. He knew how he had rejected his father. He knew the shame he would have felt. He knew his father most likely wouldn't even see him after the suffering he'd brought on him. But then as he got over the brow of the hill, he saw something coming towards him. Was it the village mob? Was it people, the lookouts coming to turn him away? It was blurry at first, but then he made it out and he couldn't believe his eyes. His father was running. His father, with tears streaming down his eyes, was running towards him. His father's love had always been there, but his son had never seen it. For the first time, the son understood his father's love. Think of the father all those years whilst his son was away, the agony, the pain. The father could very easily have cut off this relationship. He could have put his heart to rest by forgetting he ever even had a son. But then the possibility of his son's return would have gone. And any of you who are parents today know that wouldn't happen. But then we have verse 20, and let this hit you. We're talking about God here, let this hit you. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. He hugs the stinking pigsty boy. You need to know that God is like this. We need to know that God is like this. I need to know that God is like this. He's pure, he's physical. He doesn't hold us at harm's length. He is not distant. Jesus did not need to include these details, these vivid emotions, but he does. He wants you to feel something here about the way God welcomes you home. And then we get to verse 21. And we see that significantly the son's speech is altered. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. The son on his return started by wanting to still earn the respect of his father, to give him something. Let me work, father. Let me be one of your hired sons, father, uh, hired craftsmen, father. This is religion. Bring the little bit you've got and give the best you've got. Even if you know in front of Almighty God it is nothing, then God will accept you and then you can know him. This couldn't be further from the truth. This is not Christianity. It's not what this Bible talks about. Jesus is saying to those he's telling the story to, he's saying to us, to those who think they understand God, that they are entirely wrong. See how the speech changes. He does not get to finish the sentence he had planned the son because he's overwhelmed by the love of the father. The offer to become a craftsman is gone. He's stunned by his father's love and he surrenders completely to him. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can say anything else, the father orders a party. Now, please forgive me if this sounds a bit direct. The greatest mistake we can make in understanding the God of the universe and the love he has for us is this. He knows we've gone to the far country. He knows that every day we want to run off to the far country, even when we do trust him. Just look back over the last week if you have followed him this week. And if you've never followed Christ, you know this as well. There's always an addiction to chasing after things to bring you happiness, to bring you joy, which you know are empty. Where is true joy to be found? This boy initially thinks it's to be found by coming to the end of his tether saying, I can still do something for you, Father, and then you'll be my friend, won't you, Father? If I do something for you, then you'll love me, Father. The Father says you can do nothing. 
Don't think you can offer your paltry efforts to me. You've really screwed it up some. There's nothing you can do to earn my love. But, and this is where it's brilliant, you're not out, you're in because I love you so much. You could screw it up a billion times and I would never stop loving you, ever. This is the ridiculous truth of the gospel. It's scary. And you know if you're a Christian, I need to get this in my head, you need to get this in your head clearly. If you're thinking of becoming one, you have to get this clear. The way you join into Christ now is you know you have nothing to bring to him, no matter how brilliant or beautiful you might be. But God is for you. It's ridiculous. He's totally and unconditionally committed to you. He looks at you, even with all the rubbish, even with the dirty clothes and the rags and the stinking pig smell of his son. And he delights in us. He delights in you. Even in darkest moments, there is great joy that you were totally loved by the creator of the universe. How? He sent his son, Jesus. Jesus never went off to a far country. He never ripped off his heavenly father. He died so that all of us who screw it up are welcomed home because the price has been paid. No work, nothing we can do to earn our acceptance, only the acceptance of Christ as our saviour. Joy is what the younger son was seeking. What can give you more joy than when you find yourself in the pigsty? And I often find myself there in that mess and to be thinking, wow, Jesus has died for me and Jesus loves me so unconditionally that he'll never let me go. If you know this is true today, I hope your heart is jumping. I hope your heart is praising. And if you think I don't trust Christ, you might just be saying, oh, but I could. I could be loved by the creator of the universe like this. I could. If that's what he's like, then... See how the father responds. The village would have been saying, look at this stinking fool. Amazing. He's going to get what he deserves. The father's going to get his stick out and beat him. But instead, what do they see? They see this hug, this warm embrace. And then he gets the best robe. He's honoured again as a son in this house. He probably gets a shower first, but then he gets the best robe. He gives him a ring, the signet ring, the si ring used to seal contracts. This would have been particularly galling to the older son. The rest of the estate is promised to the older son, but he has restored his younger son as a son, the father. He gives him shoes. Servants go bare feet. Sons wear shoes. He is restored fully. Listen, if you come back to God, you never need to be ashamed again. You are restored. And what about the older brother? How will the older brother respond to this? Come back next week and find out. There's a painting. It hangs in my study. I look at it most days. It's a beautiful picture of God. It says this. It says, this is the story of the prodigal son. It really should be called the running father who waited every day for his son to return. The boy who had rejected him so badly, and finally when he saw him, saw him from far away off, his father ran to him and hugged him and kissed him. Look at that picture. This is us. This can be you if you haven't turned to follow Jesus today. The source of our confidence, the source of our goodness, is not in our record. It's not in who we are or how good we are. It's in his record. So what now, listening in today, what are some of the challenges, what are some of the recommendations we see in this story? Firstly, 
Just admit that the one who made us is one that we've taken advantage of and we've gone to the far country. All of us are like this younger son, chasing after our own ways of living, looking for satisfaction, looking for joy and acceptance in different places. All of us are lost. Admit that. Stop hiding. Get out of the pigsty. Be brave and get out of it because we can see the end result, can't we? The amazing truth we see here shows us that it would be ridiculous to stay in the pigsty. If that's where you are today, come back. And if you come back to God, expect outrageous love. I was challenged by this question. Do I realise how much God loves me? I say it, I say God loves me. I say it regularly, I sing it. Do I realise how much God loves me? How much God loves you? How loving this loving God actually is? the unconditional acceptance by God. If you trust God today, you will get a new life. You will get a new beginning. No one is too far away. No one is in too far a country. At the lowest of the low. The boy was at the lowest of the low. No one is too far away to come back to the Father. You don't need to clean yourself up first. You don't need to get your life in order first or to read a certain amount first. If you haven't trusted in this God, you can do so today. Speak to me. I'd love to chat to you about that if that's you today. Today, just come to the Father and feel his loving embrace. And if you've been a Christian here for 20 years, five years, three years, however long, the way you started the Christian life is the way you live it for the next week. It's a free gift. You don't deserve it, and he loves you completely. No matter how much you screwed it up yesterday, or Wednesday, or the day before, you can't earn it, it's a gift. And this doesn't change as long as we live. We think the better Christian I am, the more he loves me, and it's nonsense. It's utter nonsense. I think it often, it's nonsense. It takes all our joy away. This story ends with a party. See the celebration, remember Christ loves you. Live remembering that every day. Remembering who we are, remembering who he is. It's why we come to church, why we sing songs, it's why we come together, we, to remind each other of this. Because the Father God says to you, if you've trusted in him, we'll read it now, verse 24. He says, let's have a feast and celebrate. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That is the God we worship. Let me pray. Father God, we praise you that when we were lost, that when we keep going back to the pigsty, when we stink and we have rebelled, Lord, you love us so much. You are constantly on the lookout, Lord. You do not let us go. As we come back to you, Lord, as we accept your forgiveness, we are embraced by the most loving, outrageous, unconditional love in the world. Father, help us to understand that this is the God of the Bible. If we don't believe in you today, Lord, I pray that we may see this as afresh, that this is who you are. This is how you view us, no matter how far we've wandered, no matter what our life looks like now, Lord, this is how you view us with unconditional love. We praise you and thank you, Lord. We are not worthy. We cannot earn our way there, Lord, but we praise you that you, in your mercy, by your grace, 
reach out to us. Kiss us and embrace us and welcome us into your family, Lord. Nothing I can bring. It's all from you. We praise you and thank you so much. In your precious name. Amen.